Dad. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Why are you crying? Come on. Yeah, you are. I'm just sad because I'm going to miss you. Why are you sad? You're going to see me next weekend. Hmm. Okay, I won't be sad. Bye. I'll see you, Mom. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti, casting director in Los Angeles, probably best known for casting the long-running CBS series Criminal Minds, where, as you know, I've cast psychopaths and serial killers and their victims. And within those episodes, I've had the opportunity to cast amazing performers who happen to possess different kinds of disabilities, be they deaf actors or wheelchair-using actors or actors with Down syndrome. And I've also cast four characters who are in the throes of a debilitating illness, illnesses that are causing them to become disabled. But folks, I've never cast an actor nor a character quite like the one that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, we're still covering Mr. Inbetween. As you know, we're into season three, but we are so lucky. We have a very special guest joining us today, and we're so over the moon. I mean, I know Brian is just about to pee his pants. Say hello, <laughs> Brian, my sexy beast. How are you? Oi, oi, oi. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here today. And sexy beast number two, you too must be just freaking out about our special uh, guest, right? Just a teensy little bit because, yes, this was, as social media has explained or evidenced, Yes, the show's been a sensational hit, but this particular character in particular is just so beloved. So I am pretty juiced. Okay, so without further ado, we have with us today... Nick or Nicholas Kassam. Pleased to meet you, Sexy Beasts. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> and tell us who you play on Mr. In Between. So I play Bruce, Ray's brother and His... uncle of Brit. That's right. That's right. And we have to say, Nick, Brian and I, as, as former actors, and I, I've written a play about somebody with cerebral palsy, we were so interested in your performance and how just did say you wrote a little thing about his performance about not being uh, too sentimental, too modeling. Do you want to tell Nick what you had said about uh, his performance? Yeah, we've seen performances of uh, by able actors playing disabled actors in the past. That they're often, you know, the phrase court acting. And, and I think there's been quite a few instances of that. But I think what resonated with people, particularly around the world, didn't matter where they're from, US, Australia, and of course, it's been bigger in the US than it has been here, is just how authentic and real your performance was, Nick. And it just touched people's hearts in such a way. So yeah, an extraordinary performance and just nothing but, as I'm sure you have received so many congratulations for it, because it's it's an extraordinary performance and we're really excited to dig into it. Brian? I got to do a masterclass with a gentleman here in the States, Jose Quintero. He started Circle in the Square Theater back in the 50s and 
like in the 70s, he had a larynectomy where his larynx was taken out. And so he spoke with uh, electrolarynx, right? So it sounded very automated. It sounded very monotone and robotic, his voice. So everything he communicated to us as students was with his eyes. And that was the thing that stood out for me when I saw your performance was the vocal effect was phenomenal, but it was the energy in the eyes of a man trapped in his own body, Mm -hmm. trying desperately to be present and to connect. That's where the energy of the character resided for me. And I think that's, there's part of me that that doesn't want to ask any questions, right? Just wants the performance to like be its own thing. But I am curious, what was that process for you? What was the, the length that you went to to create this fully formed character off the page? I've got a few things in my life that have informed that uh, as well. I went to YouTube and watched a lot of people's stories on it mm. and shed a lot of tears watching amazing stoic people tell their stories online. And so part of me was, I guess, to some extent, observing their physicality and, and their, their vocal patterns and things like that. But more than that, really, I wanted to I was interested in the light in their eyes, who they were as people and their stories, because I did want Bruce to be someone who, in this show, Bruce, Ali, his girlfriend and Britt, I mean, I guess they all serve the function of humanising Ray. So the more we make that family bond real and beautiful, then the more we will go on a journey of him as he does awful things. And so... That was important to me to like, for instance, when I was working with him, a lot of the time my focus was on trying to get Ray to smile or to laugh or something like that. So from an actor's point of view, that was helpful to me as far as taking my mind off myself, not mm-hmm. worrying about what I'm doing anymore, but concentrating on the other, getting a reaction from him. So I was always thinking about that, about trying to make him smile and, and same with Britt, trying to, to make that playful. So, yeah, so I watched a lot of people's stories. In particular, there's a Melbourne ex-Aussie rules player, Neil Danaher, who runs a, a fight MND charity. And he, what I loved about him was, so he goes and talks to ex-footballers and is incredibly positive and uplifting and funny and in a sort of an Australian sort of larrikin kind of way, very funny. So I watched a lot of him, and not that I'm trying to be him at all, but I liked the sense of humour that came across, that comes across with him, and I, and I wanted... I've also, I'm going to be a little bit yeah, scatterbrained please, no, here. but just yes. go, go, go. I used to work in, in one of my jobs on the side of acting. I used to work as a clown doctor a lot in, in hospitals. So I've sort of worked with a lot of kids with disabilities and, and sicknesses and things like that. And so from my point of view, to be able to do that kind of work, you don't see the illness. You're playing, you're mucking around with the child who might be sick, might be terminal, but they just want to play. So I'm sort of used to that world a bit, you know, and I've also worked mm. in, dis- again, in a, another life, worked with disabilities, people with dis- disabilities. So I'm sort of not thrown by that world. So while there was, to some extent, there was the technical challenge of mm. doing things vocally, my physicality, my hands and, and things like that, and, and I wanted to get that right and be authentic, I was kind of more concerned with lightness of spirit of the character or even though of course it's there's there's a you know he's dealing with the ultimate I wanted there to be whenever possible to be a playfulness with Brit and with Ray basically to be able to show someone not unlike a lot of the stories that I saw online with people with great courage going into something like that also a couple of years ago my dad 
passed away, not with that illness, but with, with an illness that, that had sort of certain physical attributes similar. And you mentioned the eyes. It was the same for him. You know, when you, when you see someone who starts to lose the capacity to speak in that, of course, the eyes become this sort of su- such a powerful thing where you're, where you're looking at someone almost wanting to convey how much you love someone through the eyes, but then also trying to absorb every last memory and, and nuance of the person into you, you know, it becomes this sort of two-way street that the the eyes become everything. So I was mindful of that. And there was a number of scenes where I just thought, I'm just going to look mm-hmm. intently at him. And he wasn't looking at me and that didn't matter. I just wanted to take in Ray for what might be the last time or I don't know. And so that was, for me, that, as you mentioned, uh, Brian, that, yeah, the eyes were was a, a big factor in my consciousness of what I, what it is that I was trying to do in, mm-hmm. in the role. Mm. I also loved how you calibrated his illness, right? So he's going through a process of degenerating and getting worse and worse. Yeah, Um, it was tricky that because it's actually not written in the script at all that he suffers from those things. So I did that in the audition, which was just my choice, because I I don't know if you remember sort of early on in one of the first scenes, when you sort of introduced to him, he sort of talked, sort of somewhat self-deprecatingly or, you know, he sort of talks about how, oh, women, they, they love me mm. now that I've got MND sort of thing. And I sort of thought, well, that, that will be more humorous if he is physically suffering from something. So he's clearly not at his, what we would all probably assume is our most attractive. And therefore I thought there would be more humor in that, but it actually wasn't written in the script, which, so I don't know what other people did when they auditioned, but, mm. but maybe that a little bit set me apart. It was probably a risk, but in this case it worked. You mentioned Neil Danaher uh, there, Nick. I heard a rumour yeah. that Scott had based the character with Neil Danaher as a sort of inspiration. Do you know if that was the case yeah. or was No, I only heard that recently myself. So I, right, he's okay. certainly been, been in the, the news. Well, he's yeah. a known figure here in Australia, but certainly that, that organisation the last, I'm not sure, five, ten yeah. years maybe. Yeah. Or, but no, that's, that never came up with Scott, no. So you mentioned that you had to audition. That was one of the things I was going to ask you if you had to audition or if it was an offer situation. So what did it say in the breakdown, if you can remember, to describe uh, him? No, I can't. I can't really remember. I mean, just mm-hmm. that he was suffering, but there was no, certainly no mention of the fact that he was physically affected by it at this stage. And, and Scott mm-hmm. has sort of said that he didn't write it that way. Mm-hmm. And it, it did become somewhat problematic that, that I'd made that choice too because the speech then is so slower it affected, for instance, in the second series, Scott wrote some beautiful stuff that ended up having to be cut because now my rhythm was so much slower. It didn't allow time-wise, <laughs> you know, to get through it. So, for instance, in, in the last scenes, there was stuff that, like, on the day of shooting, they were just going, we can't do all this. And, I, yes. and I, you know, I, I tried to do it again, tried to speed it up a little bit, but trying to be faithful to what we had established. Mm. And, and it just couldn't be done. So we had to quickly rejig things and... I think it still worked, but I felt bad in a sense that I, like, his beautiful writing was going by the wayside. But you but know, that's it, what yeah. I felt so authentic to me, and we spoke about this in previous episodes where we covered you, is that I wrote a play about a, a man with cerebral palsy based on a real man with cerebral palsy, and that was the right. thing is he spoke so slowly that to tell yeah. a dirty joke, it took him like 10 minutes, you know, to get yeah. to the punchline. And But yeah. that's authentic, and I was stunned at how authentic you were because, you know, in a lot of network shows, at least here in the U.S., you know, the executives would say, well, it's too authentic because we can't understand what he's saying. And I, I disagree. It's like that, that's the point that yeah. you really got to be listening. And he's really trying to be understood. Yeah. 
I think that that's a credit to Scott and Nash because I, I think certainly initially when I first turned up, you know, I had this, those same fears myself. You know, am I taking too, you know, when you're first day at school, you know, on a set and you go, am I taking too long to say this? Would you allow me this space to be this? Or am I being not articulate enough? I'm trying to be faithful to what I've researched, what I've seen, but still ultimately they, it comes down to them. And, and so I was probably pretty nervous doing it initially, but to their credit, they allowed that. I don't really recall ever being told to maybe once or something, just can you say that line a little clearer or, you know, but they let me be. And I think that's what helped me enormously too. Their relaxation in having my input, like, you know, ideas that I had about it, they were very open to that. Scott was not mm. precious about the words, which I loved what he'd written, but he was more than happy going, just say what you want to say, you know, and it bred a sort of, for me, which you don't necessarily always have, a job where I felt valued in what I was doing, my ideas were invariably accepted and talked about. And so then you feel a creative part of what's happening rather mm. than just someone for hire sort of thing. They trusted mm. you. They trusted yeah. you. Right? And I, yeah. And I was going to, I was going to ask that question, like how much give and take and how much kind of creative flow was there on the set, which you, which you just answered, which is great. And one of the yeah. things that we've all marveled at, and I, and I think is one of the great strengths of this show is that you have really two creative visions working hand in hand. You've got Nash and Scott, right? So you don't have a lot of competing voices. It's, it's a really, and I think it adds the kind of clarity to the storytelling. So I guess my question is like, did that, the creativity you to, to add in what, what you wanted? I mean, t talk about like the energy on the set between them and like, working with both of those together. Yeah. You know, I, I guess uh, I can't quite remember how, how much I work. I think on the second series, I might have just been 10, 10, 12 days on it. So to some extent, I'm coming in and Scott and Nash would have been doing ridiculous hours. Scott would have been doing rewrites in the evening. Nash and Scott have been editing as they go on the weekend. Mm. So their lives must have been incredibly stressful, sleep deprived. But I never sensed that. I just came on and they were always seemingly, I mean, I've sort of since heard that, you know, Scott was incredibly stressed doing it and, and so was Nash, but I never saw that. So it's, it's a, again, a credit to them. I, I feel like I came in and they were so ready to have a joke, ready to listen to what my input. Yeah, there was just complete ease. I mean, I've sort of joked to Scott, I, he's very unactorly. And I mean that in a kind of as a compliment, you know, like he and he's not industry in that regard. Mm -hmm. Like he, he's, you know, he's got, a, I think, a, a, an unusual career in that it's, it's been this film many uh, as a, a magician many, many years ago. And he sat on it and, and it, it's been in him. And so he hasn't done, I don't think, a whole lot of other jobs. The beauty of that is that he comes in sort of not knowing what the rules are a little bit and therefore breaking him I don't think he doesn't kind of he, he puts himself down a bit going oh, I don't know what I'm doing I don't think he knows how good he is that he's doing Nash I think is also likes to do things his own way a, a bit again sort of breaking rules a little bit the way they go about doing things and so together I think that becomes this great marriage but then again to have the space to not be threatened by someone else's idea coming in and to go yeah, yeah great run with that 
it's only little things, but I mean, I, I, it was my idea for, for Brit to be doing my nails. Scott was like, yeah, great, perfect. I mean, for me, it just made this perfect sense. You know, someone like this would be receiving care on an increasing scale as they go through this thing. Not that that's care, but it's, it's, it's of an intimate nature that says a lot about, you know, the family bond. And, and it's the sort of thing that a father and uncle you do with with a niece and that you know playing dress ups or what have you and, and again also just for, for lines as far as the Scott set the tone too I mean he would sort of be somewhat loose with his lines sometimes you know and sort of abandon lines sometimes and it would encourage you to do the same they set the tone then as to the license that you have as an actor initially when I saw Scott and I, again I've said this to him so I sort of I wondered about his the level of his energy that it was it seemed so down and so low are going are you even acting like <laughs> I, 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 I wondered yeah. is this going to be interesting <laughs> and I've said to him I've, and I've said it he was a great acting lesson for me seeing his tone and going okay you know and I'm sure initially when I came in I was being too loud and or whatever you know not quite getting it right and they're saying okay so I'll, I'll take my he informs the tone with which then you're doing something and then when you see back what he's done I just he's amazing you know and and Talking about eyes too. I mean, he shows so much through his oh, eyes. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. his, his language, you know, in a very Australian way is quite, you know, sparse and there's there's a lot mm. between the lines, but it's, it's not a lot of exposition or, you know, anything like that. And so his leer, his smile mm. that he gives, his menacing smile, he, he conveys so much with, with so little words, you know. And, and so he sets the tone very much so from an acting point of view. Nash also is not a man of a lot of words I mean I'm sort of here I am I'm quite talking this my rhythm is quite different to Bruce you know the way I sort of speak in it but Nash doesn't say much but when he does it's sort of it's worth listening to and you know he gives you just great little pointers or he's got such a great eye for what he wants to and what he doesn't want and yeah, I think I'm rambling now. No, 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 absolutely not ask, at all. I want to, and, ask, and it, you about, I want to ask you about season one because hmm. I'm very curious about, so when you were cast, did you get all the scripts at once or did you get them one at a time each episode? I'm just curious as how much of Bruce was already written. And I have a theory. My theory is that once they saw your performance, that they wrote towards you to give you much more to do in season two. That's my theory, but I could be completely wrong. You might be a little bit right, a little bit wrong there, I think, because I certainly got the scripts all at once, season one, but somewhere in, I think, in the in the making of season one or maybe just in the readings, I can't remember, he told me he knew where I was going to end up. I don't know if he'd written it all, but he certainly knew how he wanted me to die sort of thing. And he, I can't remember if he actually said how I was going to die, or but he alluded to it. So he, he, knew, he knew an arc mm-hmm. of where he wanted to go in season two. Don't know if he'd written it all. Probably not. But, but yeah, he knew that, that arc. I think season three, possibly that was now, this is a new stuff that he, that he maybe had to really come up from scratch, I think. Mm-hmm. Cool. Dean? Yeah. I was just going to say that, um, uh, Nick, you talking about the license that you're given on the set, just it, it reminded me that I heard an interview with Scott that was recorded during season one and he was talking about, you know, that well-known story of, of Nash and he stumping around the planet for, you know, 10 years trying to flog the thing and to, they got a green light. They were, they were offered a deal with a, a big deal in the US but they turned it down purely over creative control. They were just like, yeah. no, we're not going to be able to do this how we want. They were, you know, sort of defensive about whether Scott was right for the role, but more to the point, 
that they when they talked about creative control, they just went absolutely off the table. We're out of here. Bye. And that's what I think. You know, Scott is so not industry because you you would think someone like that who hasn't done a lot, you you jump at the opportunity then Correct. regardless. But and that's where he, I think he sort of doesn't need it, which is mm. helpful. There's there's something about Scott that is in that regard. He's not an actor for hire. He's not not like sweating on the next job. He's he's gone and driven cabs. Mm-hmm. Not that that is, that's his preferred choice, but he'll do it if need be. So yeah. in that regard, he's not he's not going to compromise. So I think that's what allows him, as as I'm, as much as I'm sure that was a bit of a tortured period for him, mm-hmm. you know, going through that. I think he's more than fine with kind of walking away or not compromising at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which gives him power in that regard. If you kind of mm-hmm. go, well, I'll go. I will go drive cabs. I will do right. something else. I don't care. Right. Not everyone can do that. Some people are going to go, okay, I'll just get it made and then not be happy with what you've created. Mm. You right. know? And, and well, you know, most people are in that boat probably, myself included. You know. Hey, you guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go over and give us a positive six-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Plus, if you know someone who would like the show, please send them a link. Sharing is caring. And now back to the show. Well, we, you know, in the States, we have all these, and these stories may be apocryphal, but we have all these stories like, you know, Harrison Ford was going to give up acting and pursue carpentry full time. And then he got Harris, you know, then he got Han Solo and Billy Zane didn't give a shit about auditioning and started looking like crazy. There are all these stories that we hear. It's like one, and and I think what it boils down to, it's like, once you just kind of like give up the expectation, once you kind of just release yeah. You know, then it's like you there's freedom in that you know yeah. and, and again sure. it's not it's not easy to do that you know no, I mean? like what no. scott has achieved in his personal life is to be able to be in that place i mean if it were that easy i mean we'd have a lot more successful actors on the planet for sure for sure i mean yeah. he, he you know won some award here in australia and he received you know he wasn't there at the awards which is so scott you know and he, and he was uh uh filmed uh he's Thank you for receiving the award fell off, off his phone out in the desert somewhere. Yeah, and it was so, I saw that. Yeah, again, yeah. so Scott, <laughs> I just loved yeah. it. But it's so, it's like I take it or leave it. You know? So I'm wondering, um, Nick, did you know the casting director really well before she brought you in for this, Kirsty McGregor? Uh, I, I've certainly go in there a bit. I mean, I've, you know, I have a, a, a really lovely relationship with her and, and, and she over time has, you know, shown a lot of faith in me and I've, I've got a few jobs with her and, you know, she's, yeah, uh, she's fantastic. She can uh, be very honest with me, which is great about, you know, what it is that I've, I've done in castings and that. And, uh, um, yeah, so I certainly knew. I mean, I, I also, I went in this with zero expectations of getting it really. I, I, as I kind of do with most auditions. I don't, I always yeah. really go, well, I, I know who I'd cast ahead of me. That's, that's <laughs> sort of my uh, you know, mindset. But in this job, I, I went to school with Joel, Nash's brother, oh, with the, not school, to, I studied acting with him. Um, mm. So I knew Nash a little bit. Joel was, I knew uh, better. Uh, so so my, in my head it was, well, I know Nash a little bit. Maybe I'm some little bit better chance of getting this gig for that reason. But other than that, I, mind, I certainly didn't know Scott. I didn't know, but yeah, but Kirsty got me in. Um, um, so I think we're we're all curious about your background. And I, it looks like you're a theater nerd, just like Brian and I. Am I right or wrong? It looks like you. Uh, I, no, I haven't done theater for since having kids. I, mm-hmm. I, it's it's one of those terms where it's a little bit in the too hard basket for me, um, as far as how much you've you've got to put into into being a, a theater actor and the time and and things like that. 
uh, my anxiety levels, how I deal with things like that, I, I, I think to some extent uh, I can be guilty of bringing things home a little bit and I, and I need to get better at that. And so with kids, I kind of went, for me now, no. It, um, so I've sort of a little bit more uh, pursued uh, film and TV since having because I've got you know two kids and they're 11 and 14. So it's been a, been a while since I've done theatre. Yeah. Right, because I saw on your CV that you did a tour with the Umbilical Brothers. And if people have kids, you know the Umbilical Brothers as the upside down show, Shane and David, which my yeah. children absolutely loved and is very physical. And so that just sort of piqued my interest on what that was yeah. like. I didn't get that through any skill on my own. It's computer nepotism here. I'm the godfather <laughs> of David's kids. Uh, so he, he just wanted a drinking buddy on tour, I think. And so, uh, yeah, uh, but I'm a big fan of theirs as well. And they, it's amazing what they've done. They've sort of carved out this little, like they put sound and mime together. Like they don't have a patent on that. And yeah. then they've made a, made a career out of it for... Yeah, as part of decades. 20 years I think it yeah. traveled the world like you know I've got this perfect little thing that goes across language barriers and things like that they can perform anywhere in the world and they've been so I yeah did a tiny little role in, in one of their shows and traveled around with them for a while and but I was just a fan like you know jaw dropped at what they do so was that the period when you were clowning in hospital as well or my the same era? probably an yeah. overlap yeah Clowning uh, in I hospital. Say, so, so you missed yeah. the role for Patch Adams, even with that background, huh? Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I, was, I was a bit after that. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not. A lot of people think that, oh, no, I don't like clowns. It's not. From, from my point of view, that's I wasn't a clown. I, I was basically an improviser and, and just go in there. And I had very few skills. There'd be some people who go in and they can sing up a storm on a ukulele and they can juggle and magic tricks. I had none of that. <laughs> I would just go into hospitals and just banter with kids and let their imagination take us wherever Aww. we went and, and just mm. uh, very humbling grounding work doing that sort of stuff and so important but but i yeah i got out because i've i've done it enough you know i did mm. it for a fair while and and uh you you want to be doing it for the right reason something like that and be selfless about it and the moment you start going oh this is a gig then it's probably time yeah, to get yeah. out Hi, listeners. Uh, we certainly hope you're enjoying this interview with Nick Cassim. Of course, Nick's performance as Bruce is a fictional character, but unfortunately in the real world, MND, motor neuron disease, is a debilitating and ultimately a 100% fatal disease. If the term motor neuron disease or the acronym MND is unfamiliar to you, it may be because you're used to a different acronym, which is ALS. If you're in the US, you might also know this apocryphally as Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, since the famous baseballer famously suffered from the same disease. But when you hear MND, think ALS. When you hear ALS, think MND. They're one and the same. Sadly, the life expectancy from diagnosis to fatality is only a very scarce 27 months and there are unfortunately no treatments at all yet to prolong life. Scott Ryan confirmed to me off air that the inspiration to write Bruce's character to be afflicted by MND came from his knowledge of Aussie Rules legend Neil Danaher and his own battle with MND. Neil is the founder of an organisation called Fight MND and you can find them at fightmnd.org.au. 
This organisation is recognised worldwide as a leader in the promotion, fundraising and funding of research around MND or ALS. Their scientific board evaluates projects from anywhere in the world and they simply follow the most promising leads and fund them. Their goal is nothing short of a cure to end MND and ALS. Since founding in 2014, Fight MND has currently contributed just a tick under $50 million globally for research into a cure. We'll put links in the show notes to the organization and a direct link to donate. So no matter where you are in the world, your donation matters because the cure is not for a country. It'll be for the whole world, anyone afflicted by this terrible disease. The best scientists in this area are certain that this debilitating and fatal disease is curable. It's just a matter of research, and that means money. We here at Killer Casting are certainly donating and ask you to consider the same. So please, click the link in the show notes. Every dollar helps. And now, back to Nick. You know, I'm always curious as to what movies inspire actors, what performances, how you turn to acting. Do you want to give us a little thumbnail of your your, your uh, journey? Or? Uh, look, how I turn, I, I, when I was a kid, I had lots of uh, bad acne and my mum sent me along to some drama thing to, to lift my confidence, uh, something like that. It was my first in the drama. But I didn't do drama at school or anything. I was more into sport. But I remember, <laughs> I remember seeing an officer and a gentleman on some <laughs> yeah. family holiday, which is sort of bizarre. And I think I had some, I, was, I must have been, uh, you know, 16 or something like that. And I probably had a bit of a bromance thing going at that point with uh, Richard Gere. Oh, hey, look, he's... Uh, uh, I wouldn't Absolutely. mind being like that, which is <laughs> now a little embarrassing that that might be. No, your, not to your... me. N- not to <laughs> me. Nick, Nick, have you seen uh, Breathless, the 1983 version? I, only millions of times. Yes. Oh, I don't know, because, no, okay. Absolutely. But I, see, that's, I, they're not supposed I, to like that. You're supposed to like the, yes, the French original. Of course, of it, but, right? Yeah. yeah. But I, so I, I watched the Richard Gere one all the time, I, going around I, quoting I, it. I, I love that movie so much. I bought an yeah. X rental VHS of it, right, from a, from the big pink video store Mine. on Smith, on Smith Street in Collingwood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what town did you grow up in, by the way? Are you uh, Melbourne? Sydney. Balmain, uh, okay. Sydney, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but but I wore that tape out, literally wore Same. it out yeah. uh, until nice. I, I I bought the DVD about oh, ten years ago, and I was astonished when I played it at the the lighting and the cinematography and the like, the quality of the film because I'd been yeah. used to watching it on this VHS tape that had been dragged across tapes <laughs> for about nine hundred times. It was just yeah, such yeah. an eye opener. Yeah, but he's a, he was just yeah the guy that. Uh, Every woman wants to be with, and every woman, uh, every man wants to be very much. Yeah, know. well, so, no, that's what I had, you know. And and then I worked for a few years after after school, uh, but then you know went to a drama three year drama course. And but then as far as other films go, and I I, I loved Casablanca was a, was a, you know a great film. Of, I loved a lot of De Niro films. A lot of my favourite films said The Deer Hunter, Breaking the Waves, Lars von Trier. Oh. They're, filmed, they're, bizarre, I, I, they're films that I've only ever seen once because they sort of rocked me so much. And I will watch them again someday, but I, I don't really 
I, I love that feeling so much of being moved by something that I don't want to it dissipate and to, to lessen mm. in a way. But also, like say films like that, The Deer Hunter and Breaking the Waves, they were two films that I was hating. Mm. I was about three quarters of the way into the film and they were so slow, their rhythm. I was, it was doing my head in and then all of a sudden they ended and I'd loved it. So somehow in that, I, the amazing thing about good films is that it asks you to give over to its rhythm in some way. And, and in this world now where the information, everything is coming at you so rapidly and things like that, to ask to slow down and take in. I have liked things more recently than that, but, <laughs> but, but you know the things that are that are that are slow and ask you to no, you watch our story, take in our rhythm, and and I found that interesting that that I in a way would have would have walked out of those films mm. that were doing my head so much, and then now they end up some of my favourites, and from that I would never walk out of something mm. because of that, because of those two films that I was in the process of hating, and then mm. end up absolutely loving them. A Touch of Evil, another uh, Orson Welles film, which I remember just, again, just being blown away. By, I thought, you know, watching this old black and white film and, and the, the politics of it felt so contemporary and so amazing and the, and the, the shots in it was so pioneering and, and that was, again, a great lesson to me, going, in a way, ju put, judging something from so long ago, prejudging mm -hmm. it as going, oh, it can't be as good as what... And then seeing it, it was it blew my mind, you know? Right, right. Um, and do yeah, you, what else? Do you binge things? Do you get on like a binge roll the way that, you know, now that we have all the streaming and stuff like that? Because that was the no. great thing about watching Mr. In-Between is that I could like just binge one and two yeah. right through, you know? Yeah, I mean, I do a little bit. I'm kind of ruled by my kids. I end up watching what they watch. <laughs> so I... Um, like I'm watching a lot of Brooklyn Nine Nine and oh, yeah. and, uh, and and uh, Superstore because that's what they're. Oh doing. yes, <laughs> yeah, my kids are. And, and they're they're watching it over and over, and so I watch it, and then by the time they go to bed, I go right, and then I'm I'm out, fall asleep. So I binged a couple of. So just recently did a job on an Australian show, so I quickly binged that show so to know what I was walking yeah. into, sort of thing. Yeah. But I'm also a little bit. Like I whined about mobile phones when they first came out, so I didn't get one till ten years. I'm ten years behind any technological thing, so I only got streaming things because the kids na nagged us for so long. So mm -hmm. I'm ashamed to say there are some absolute amazing shows that I have not watched. It's wow. it's embarrassing, but it's true. I'm I'm so far behind. I've got a list of a whole lot of things that I need to catch up in in my own industry. <laughs> I've got a quick question because we yeah in our line of work, Lisa and I, we see a fair amount of Australian actors making the move over. It's a two part yeah. question. One is it a prerequisite to be an Australian actor to be on Home and Away? Because it seems <laughs> it's it's kind of ubiquitous. It's like New York actors; they've all done Law and Order. Like right. every single yeah. one of them. So is yeah. is everybody like home and away? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I when I was doing, yeah, they overlapped. I think Mister In Between and doing this. So I had this sort of somewhat peripheral functionary character on that for a few years. And and although what I was doing it was not particularly challenging, that is a lovely bunch of people, and and there's there's enormous things that you can pick up and learn, and just just working in that. So I'm very grateful for it. But I think it was like over the years, I've been on it three different times as three different characters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure the fans are going, hey, hang on, that, that police cop was an editor two years ago. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I'm sorry, this is the, but this is the thing that, and Lisa and I have talked about this, that with Australian actors, 
there seems to be an ease when they come into the room in terms of like, not only like their, their manner, but like their ability with text, their ability to kind of like put the skin of the character on and just move effortlessly in the world that is created on the page. In this country, you know, obviously it's like, you're either like Meisner or Strasberg. There are schools of kind of theater thought that people kind of are tribal about. Mm-hmm. What is that process like in Australia? Like you, you did theater school, like what is the, what is the principal focus? Cause it feels like it's in the training that you all have that allows for that ease of performance, that ease of that comfort level in terms of the performance. I don't know. I, if that's true for all Australians, I think that that would be lovely. I don't know if I've experienced that. I mean, I, I feel like I, I, I've had awful audition room experiences where I feel like a lump of wood and I don't feel that, that ease. Um, and yet, and then other times you do. And a lot of the time that comes down to my connection with the work, how, how much I'm investing in, in something. Um, I'm probably guilty at times of, of being a, a lazy actor, of not, not, not intentionally, but you know what I mean? But, and then other times, like say something like with this, I, I put a lot of effort into this, into my audition, you know, looking at stuff and looking at the disease before going into it, which I probably wouldn't do for every audition. This, this was helpful for me. Because all of a sudden I did have to now I think about what I'm doing with my hands. What am I doing with my body? What am I doing with my voice? And I don't know if I would necessarily do that for every audition. Maybe every audition you don't necessarily have to do that either. But, yeah, the idea of being free and relaxed in an audition is something that I have experienced, but also I have felt out of my depth in an audition. People probably have that experience too. If culturally... I don't know. I don't know about Australian. Where, I mean, half the time I get into auditions and I, I just jibber-jabber and it's nervous chatter too. So right. I, don't, I don't know if I am necessarily that relaxed. But I certainly feel it when I am. But then that doesn't necessarily translate to getting the job, you know, as well. Sometimes yeah. you go, you're just not the right person for the job. I think sometimes too, I, look, I did a casting the other day just for an ad or something like that and I felt like, and I was, you know, trying to be a little bit quirky and I watched it back and I go, I look like a serial killer, what I'm doing. It was so, it was so not what I thought I was doing. Sure, mm. sure. And, and my partner is also an actor. She did a casting and she looked great. She looked, and I didn't think she was being that funny. And then I watched the back and said, oh, no, that works. And I think sometimes there's a disconnect with what you think you're doing, how you think you come across and what, how it actually does come across. This is what I think acting is. It's the marriage between technique and instinct. And, right, um, right, right. And, right. and sometimes... When I did Mr. In Between here, there was plenty of scenes where I was feeling emotion. But that's not ultimately important. What is important is the do you feel emotion when I'm watching it? Sure. And so if, there, if I feel emotion, there's probably a good chance that you will, but it's not a given. And just as you could be probably vacant thinking about an iron at home and, you've, and if you've got enough technique, it still might be red. And this is where the, I think the yeah. beauty and how... The, the difficulty of acting is is that it's a little bit hard to quantify what works. We work out enough about it, about technique, and we work out enough technique for self, but there's still, if, if everyone knew exactly how to make something work, or then everyone would be making money, you know, but it's a it's, it's little bit sand through the, the, the fingers a little bit, you know. I want you to do something for me. What? Forgive the old man. 
You gotta let it go, mate. No, I don't. You have to, mate. No. Holding a grudge against someone is like drinking poison and expecting them to get sick. Hmm? <laughs> Where'd you get that from? The Dalai Lama. <laughs> Be holding on to it, mate. Why don't I think about it? You know? Why don't I think about that shit anymore? Yeah, but know? when I was seeing... I seen the old man the other day. Mm. I went to say goodbye to him. Mm. I gave him a hug and I said I love you. And when I walked out of there, I felt like I was ten tons lighter, mm. you know? Mm. Because I forgave him. Until I forgave him. You know, I didn't realize the weight. Mm. You don't realize the weight that you're carrying till you put it down. Mm. Promise me you'll try. I'll try. I just want you to be happy, mate. Yeah, I know. I was going to almost ask the exact same question, Brian, because I've trained in England and I was an actor here. And broad strokes, the American technique is sort of that internal, you know, feeling, sense, memory, personalization. But when I trained in the UK, it was completely external. How you walk, how your voice is, your gesture, it was completely outside in. And so I was sort of wondering if Australia is sort of that happy, you know. Alchemy. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is where I feel like you're going to get both. And, and wherever you are, you're going to have, and this is the beauty of people coming together and acting. And, and for me, it's about finding a language of how you work together, whether it be with the director, with other actors. And people are going to bring bring different things and how they work. And you, I think you have to be open to that. And how do we, how do I work with some other actor who's coming from a different way, but not being so so egocentric, so self-centered as to be, I only care about my method, you know, like you have to find a language with other people. It's a communal thing, acting and creating something. And, and so I, like for instance, Scott, I mean, Scott, I think I suspect, and I don't know him, I haven't seen my things, but I suspect what you've seen of Scott is largely that's who he is. Mm-hmm. He, he will bring that authenticity. Uh, he's very good at being himself which is easier said than done. You know, that, that seems easy, just, you know, and, and I, I no. think if he do, does other things, th- you will kind of largely see similar stuff, and I think that's amazing to be able to do that. I'm a little bit different. I think I, I like a little bit of putting on a mask. Transformation. And, and things like that. Uh, yeah. And, but also I do like to, if, sometimes I've, if I feel like I'm not feeling something, I feel like I'm not acting, you know. Mm-hmm. And just, so, for instance, in Mr. Inbetween, there, the, the more emotional scenes I found easier because I, I and, and that was something that, you know, when I was crying with Brit, that, that was an easy scene for me. I felt like I'm acting here and I'm on top of what I'm doing and I'm feeling this and it's great. Some of the harder ones I felt when just sitting and doing not much mm. and just the, the mundanity of life sort of thing. And then I'm wondering, oh, is this enough? Did you make um, up a backstory for him at all? Because the story is so spare, we don't really get a lot of biographical background. Like, we don't know what Brucey 
did for a living, I don't think. We don't know what the tattoos mean. We don't know what the earring means. Yeah. Unless well, we, I'm, unless I'm... And we did, we did speculate like the first couple pods when we were covering season one, right? Where mm. those tattoos were noted and it was just like, yeah, there was so much open to conjecture and speculation. You know, like, had you been part great... of the crew? Had you been part of the yeah. world or not? What did you think? Well, Scott and I never spoke about it. Um, I didn't go into in, in, into a lot of detail. I didn't create a big backstory. I imagined that I would have been from a similar vein, similar walk of life with him doing petty stuff. Probably not not as skillful, not as thoughtful about uh, the way he was. Um, I, I felt like I was probably a sort of a, a simpler version of him in a way, you know, but, but someone yeah. who would do jobs with him, but not, not, not driven yeah. by it. Not, not, not that's his walk of life, but I'll get into a scrap with him, you know, and, and mm. uh, if he needs a hand, I would do that too, you know, with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think you alluded but, to that in that conversation you had with him on the couch early, it was one of the early episodes where he drops over on the couch. And I think it was like maybe even the same exchange where you said about, Oh yeah, the chicks are all over with, with MND. And you said, yeah. oh, you, you know, what's when he when he mentioned he's going to prison and uh, oh, sorry, he was had to go to anger management. And he said, oh, what happened? Right. And he said, oh, I flogged a bloke. And you said, oh, you're getting rusty in your old age, as if you that's knew, right. It was like as if you knew what would you know. What I know that world. On. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but uh, but I don't think I necessarily. Yeah, I, I imagine I've probably done stuff with him, but but not uh, from go to woe. Maybe I had some, you know dead-end job as well or something like that. I, I'm not a bouncer like he was sort of thing. Um, yeah. uh, and, and then and then going through the illness has, has like I imagine for anyone, has asked him to reassess things about his life and all of a sudden he's realised, and, you know, for me, with Brit, you know, he's not going to have children or, you know, and and, um, and so he becomes a little bit more, you know, philosophical yeah. in the end and, you know, whereas maybe that wasn't him earlier. So he's, mm. he's had to reassess Mm. who he is why we are here and and things like that but i i didn't i did it's not like i wrote down of you know yeah. pages and pages of where i've come from and that and yeah and certainly yeah, yeah. i never even asked scott or nash and right. never spoke about that's it. brilliant well mm -hmm. you've given us so much of your time um before we log off i know that dean's gonna ask a question but i just wanted you to know because you haven't seen a lot of season three but i yeah. want you to know that your presence is still in season three like the things that you know ray is going through is you can see the grief and you can see kind of the little shadow that bruce has left the space that he's left and you know like when ali finds out that bruce has died i mean all of that i saw that stuff, i saw yeah. that scene and i, I was sort of like <laughs> i was really I don't normally use the word chuffed, but I use chuffed. Uh, I was chuffed <laughs> to see that you know, they saw that scene. It was sort of like, oh, they, they're still thinking of me, which was well, yeah, really nice. Well, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, just knowing writers' rooms that I do, and it's like, yeah. and, and knowing actors as I do, like, if you weren't such a touchstone in seasons one and two and just we if we didn't feel for you we wouldn't give a fuck like we would be yeah, like yeah. oh get over it already you know but you're the strength of your performance uh it just it was just so powerful and uh it, it's Thank it's you. echoing through uh season three you know and the mm, loss of right. Bruce, i think has really you know shaken ray up and uh yeah. bye bye would you agree yeah no i you know i I went back and re or watched the rest of season two, and I, I just the 
dynamic between you and, and Ray talking about your dad, right? And yeah, the, yeah. the forgiveness and mm-hmm. how much that weight came off of you. The shadow of Bruce looms large in this show still. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. a credit to... It's a credit to the writing, it's a credit to the directing, but it's a, a huge credit to the performance and the life well, that you brought off the page. You know? It didn't have to be that way. I hammered Scott. I said, do a prequel episode. What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> For God's sake. You can, you know. Spin off. Back in the day, didn't, like, yeah, the shows have done this before. You could go back and just, you know, just we don a wig. It's all right. It be, crazy things have happened. <laughs> they did it with Breaking episode. Bad. They did it with Breaking My, Bad. It could Absolutely. Better call yeah. Bruce, right? Yeah. <laughs> my partner, my partner Nikki, came up with idea, and I, I jokingly said that to him, but I, I did joke too many times. I kept on making the joke. He, I think he saw I was not joking. Uh, <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> well, this is a great uh, moment to wrap it up. Dino, did you want to yeah. ask a question? Yeah, just um, I had one one more question uh, myself, and then I've got um, a an audio question from one of the fans. And the first one, Nick, is uh, just stalking you through um, IMDb. It seems that you and Damon have, have uh, crossed paths quite often. In, well, not quite often, but in more than a few roles. Oh, sorry, more than a yeah. few um, productions. And for instance, um, so one, I wanted to know whether that was just do you have a friendship or, you know, is Kirsty you know, also as friendly with him as, he is, as she is with you, or is it just a small pond syndrome? And then secondly, you were both in a show that has perhaps the most interesting title I've ever seen of anything, which is called the elegant gentleman's guide to knife fighting. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what's the deal with you and Damon and what is the behind the title of that show? No, I, I don't. I, I I don't see him socially and things like that. When I do right. see him, we get along very well. I think he probably does go in for jobs for for Kirsty a bit. Uh, I mean, he's a very fine actor, and and mm. uh, and I think it's just possibly one of those just chance things with with yep. cross. I mean, one of the one of the films that I I did with him, I came into it on three days because someone else had pulled out. So that was certainly just a, a chance thing, and 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 uh, and. And and I loved working with that, but I was I was a little wide because I was like, oh my god, I've got to get these lines down. There's you know three days here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I hope it's okay, you know. Yeah, but but right. he, he was great to work with. And then the that other one that the which I can't even remember how to say the elegant fight, knife fighting the, the, one. Yeah, the, the elegant yeah, gentleman's I, guide to knife fighting. Hmm. Yeah, that was kind of a, a sketch comedy show that he was one of the regulars in. I just came in for for a sketch, so I wasn't a, a full time. A I, comedy I show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that? Yeah, okay. it was a sketch sketch comedy show, and uh, he was one of the the regular cast. I did a, a, a sketch with him, which again was a a lot of fun. And he's he's uh, fantastic to work with. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so um, we've got this fan question for you. And okay, Nick. So we've had this question come in via our website, and in fact, from the moderator of the Mister In Between Facebook page. And Cody, his name is. He's from Pennsylvania. And Cody has this to ask you. I am a moderator for the Mr. Inbetween fan page on Facebook. And my question for Nick, who plays Bruce on the show, is what was your favorite part about being involved in the production as Nick, not Bruce? Did you enjoy being alongside Scott, since he's fairly new, and Nash is more weathered? I just want to know what you took away 
or what you enjoyed the most about uh, being involved in the show. Thank you. Well, the first, the first two things that came to mind that I got out of it was, to date, it is the most relaxed that I have been working. So, and again, that comes down largely to, to Scott and Nash there. I felt as relaxed, which allowed me to be, do some of my best work. Being a relaxed environment, I don't think stress creates good art. Uh, you know, I know there's a na- there's stress that in, in any workplace and that happens, but the, the ideally it's about minimising that and getting rid of allowing creativity to come to the fore, which is easier said than done, I know. And, you know, these are big machines that happen churning out this stuff and there's a, there's a lot of reasons that why things become stressful. But as much as possible, if you can be relaxed and, and, and have a laugh, I, I, uh, I think that's where people create their best work, nine mm. times out of ten. Um, and so... Yep. For me, that, that's what this experience was. Um, Scott used to, I, you know, because my I, what I wore as Bruce, not exactly going to be opening night stuff or anything. It was pretty, he used to just call me, like, treat me like I was the homeless guy. He was just kept on ha- hanging around this set, <laughs> hanging out at catering. He's going, oh, the homeless guy's back again. You know, and it was, it was just, I like that, you know, we're just mucking around and creating, just happened to be creating a bit of, I like just, yeah, hanging out with people, having a laugh and, and so... Uh, yeah, being relaxed. The other yeah. thing that I got out of it was my name. And in actual fact, they calling me Nick was a mistake on their part in the second series. I'm Nicholas in the first one. They made a mistake of calling me Nick. And <laughs> so I'm now running with that. I Because I, I remember as a kid going, I, for some reason as a kid, I wanted to have a three-letter first name. And, <laughs> and so when this happened, I went, you know what? At my age now, who knows, maybe this is a good thing for my career. I'm going to just keep going with Nick. So now that's what I put down on on uh, on things. So I've, I, it's, it's like Prince, you know, the film, the artist yeah, film, yeah. You know, or the symbol. <laughs> right. I now have a new name. You, a you've new got a name. symbol I've, coming up. Yeah, I've transitioned from Nicholas to Nick through this uh, thing. But, uh, uh, that's what Whatever well, your name, we are so <laughs> happy that you agreed to come on our show. We are so in awe of your work. Please know, because a lot of actors don't realize how much they are appreciated, how the details in their performance really are reading. And I hope you know that we have gone over <laughs> your performance, you know, with a microscope mm. and we appreciate it so, so much. So just as from one casting director to an actor, just know that you are appreciated on, on that level. You know, really that's very work. kind. Thank you very mm, yeah, much. It's lovely to very hear. much. Now, before we let you go, Nick, is there anything that you've got coming up that you'd like to, um, to plug or, or, or anything that you'd like to mention? I see you've got a couple of things in post-production. Is there anything you can tell us about that um, NDAs notwithstanding that won't get you, uh, you know, a hit put out on you by Ray Shoesmith, for example? No, there's nothing. I mean, I, I've just, of late, really, I mean, since, you know, COVID and lockdown and that, yeah. I, I've done a few short films. Things have become, you know, a, a mm. few smaller things. Um, so, so I'm waiting for them. I think they're in the editing process now. And so I, I, that's that's all I've got coming out and everything. I've I've done the old, you know, the actor the actor thing of just missing out on a job just recently. Yeah. So that, that's that'll keep me uh, grounded. And um, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. But no, not, other than that, no, nothing big coming out. I think I do. I dabble a little bit of writing myself and um, to to keep sort of uh, creative. And yeah, cool. Well, awesome, awesome. Thank you again so much. And um, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, uh, Absolute pleasure. I had fun.
All right. Yeah. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.